The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk slash summer. Hello and welcome to the Saturday edition of Coffee House Shots. I'm Cindy Yu and today I'm joined by James Hill and Fraser Nelson. Now, James, you've been taking a look at the Tory selections that are still ongoing for the next election. And you notice an interesting trend, which is that actually the Tories are not really so much talking about how they're the Conservative Party on their leaflets. I mean, tell us about that. Yeah, so this is uh, something to do with, I think, uh, part of a wider trend, which is that when the Tories are doing badly in the polls, they tend to drop the whole Tory thing altogether. And really, <laughs> just to market themselves, either on a sort of prime ministry level, the Tories are pretty ruthless when it comes to leaders. So they have a, usually quite a sort of good election winner as their leader. And then also emphasising local issues. And really, this is the sort of big story about all of this is that I think that a lot of the Tories have really tried to, in the last couple of years, um, market themselves as kind of local campaigners. And that's why you see that, you know, in current selections, almost two thirds are local councillors or former local councillors. And you're more likely to get um, council leaders than special advisors being selected these days, with a couple of exceptions. And since writing this piece, uh, which was published on Thursday morning, I've been struck by about a dozen messages or so from people on the list who've gone in touch with me uh, by all sorts of ways and um, just said that it really rang true. And I think people who had been selected or were trying to be selected, mostly trying to be selected. And of course, a cynic might say, well, you know, they're the losers from such a system. But I do think, you know, the Conservatives, the point is, as one Tory said to me, if everyone's thinking locally, who thinks about the national interest? And that's not to disparage anyone who's been selected thus far and is a council leader, etc. The point is, I think, is that you know, all sorts of things are meant to go into a parliament, you know, and it's not just about geographical diversity and having local champions. It's also about things like careers. You know, one person I looked at, you know, was a top London lawyer, leading London lawyer, and they were dissuaded by the fact that they would be expected while having this very demanding job, you know, many, many hours a week to go canvassing at least a minimum number of times. Now, if you're trying to produce a future cabinet, which is going to have a future attorney general, a future Lord Chancellor, how do you really get a sort of someone who's both a dedicated conservative but someone who's also very competent and can do these jobs because but hold on that lawyer should be expecting to need canvas right i mean if he wants no, of to course, run for no, parliament of course it once you're selected i suppose but the key point is that you have to do a certain number of times before you've gotten the through the different hoops of the list um thousands of pounds i mean tens of thousands of pounds in some cases in lost earnings um i think isabel harman my colleague when she wrote a book about this in 2018 she reported that the estimated lost earnings for a con- for a conservative in a marginal seat was £121,000. So huge amount. So the point is that the current system, no system is perfect, of course, but it does mean that you do produce a certain type who is able to jump through these hurdles. At the moment, it appears to be men, and there are issues with that. And is that money not stumped up by CCHQ? Do people have to personally stump up that money? Yeah, I mean, people have to stump up for things like their, their PAB, their assessment form, um, going to the certain training. Also, in terms of, you know, the number of days you have to book off. I mean, to give you an example, recently, um, all, can- all Conservative candidates were expected to do at least five canvassing sessions in the three by-elections of Uxbridge, Selby and Somerton. Now, say if you're for a candidate in North Aberdeenshire, you know, if you're based there, you're meant to come down to Yorkshire five times. I mean, you wouldn't even do take... 
you know, five days off work or it, that's what I mean in terms of the, and the, and the, obviously the cost opportunity. Um, and also, of course, if you're trying to go to compete with one of these seats and you know, you're up against a local councillor, you don't have the connection networks. You have to go there, wine and dine them, schmooze them, etc., to try and make an impression. And it may all be for nothing. And so that's why you have past cases, you know, things like Michael Howard was went for 40 different seats. Um, Liz Truss, when I read the book on her, she had gone for, I think, a couple of dozen seats before she finally got selected for a winnable one. And it really does weed people out. And it's a, it can be, for talented people already, they think, why do I want to bother for this? And of course, the key question, the result of all those local selections is a national party. And I think that's what people in Westminster are very much worried about is what does the future look like? And that's why you have cabinet ministers concerned that, you know, frankly, the ideological harmony is lost and the Tory party is split between people who, you know, campaign us in inverted commas, um, quite rebellious, and those who are more interested in being the future ministers and cabinet of the country. Right. And Fraser, what does this lean towards the locals say about the state of national politics and how the Conservative Party grassroots actually sees the state of its national party? I mean, it's, the, it's a vote of no confidence, isn't it? Exactly so. I mean, sometimes during a general election campaign, you can come across a leaflet for your local Tory candidate and find the word conservative isn't anywhere in the pamphlet. Now, that's normally a sign of a party in some trouble, and the Tories have been doing this for, for quite some time, I'm afraid. Theresa May almost banned the word conservative at all. She wanted to make this very presidential without disastrous results for the Conservatives. Boris Johnson, of course, just ran as Boris Johnson. Now, he wasn't there to pick up Tory voters, but Brexit voters who perhaps have hated the Tories for a long time. So the truth is that the Conservatives have not really been using the word conservative for quite some time when it comes to selling themselves on the doorstep. Now, if there isn't an overarching theme like Brexit to try to rally voters behind, then the natural alternative is to say, look, here is Joe Bloggs, he's your local candidate working for you, and trying to make people think, well, let's put party politics aside, but here is my local GP or my local councillor or something like that. Now, the Lib Dems, of course, are masters at this art. They kind of betray their, they've got a by-election um, strategy where they find a very local ca- candidate who portrays himself as being your local handyman, basically. If there's anything, if something's stuck under your fridge, then call the Lib Dem candidate, he'll come sort it out. Now, but that is, that's hyper-localism, in other words, having huge constituency surgeries, making sure you're there for everything, is a model of representative democracy. So we're not talking about somebody like chilling out in his Fulham pad, having his agent handle all the local stuff. But or somebody, Nadine Doris kicking up about not getting into the Lords and not doing any... Yeah, I mean, I think duties. he's a particularly ex- egregious example of somebody who's using her constituents to further her own political ambitions and plunging them into a by-election or threatening to when she doesn't get her own way. So, look, I can see why this makes sense for the Tories to go for local candidates. I can remember them doing this in the darkest days in Scotland uh, when they'd lost every single MP and they wanted to get back into the Scottish local, um, the Hollywood elections and they basically took the word conservative off and they said look here, 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 here's John Smith, he's a local farmer, isn't he great and but to me, this is the sort of tactics you use when you think that your brand is absolutely shot and reading James's column, it made me think that the conservatives were actually even more trouble than I had previously thought Just to pick up on something Fraser said as well, I think that you know, if you look at the problems facing Britain right now, I think most Tories would even 
privately concede that you know, nimbyism is a huge part of that, mm-hmm. not in my backyard. You look at the fact that we haven't built a reservoir since 1992. You look at the fact that we've had um, 30 years without any nuclear power plants being built. And I suppose if everyone's championing their local areas, who's mm-hmm. going to deliver the stuff nationally? It's the classic sort of cosian problem of sort of concentrated losses but diffuse benefits. So everyone benefits from a certain thing, but there's a sort of concentrated opposition in the local mm-hmm. area. The key thing is to to that. I mean, I was struck in James Kirkup's column in The Times. He had a great quote from an anonymous minister who said, I've got a green energy scheme in my area. It's perfect. It's just what the country needs. But because the Lib Dems are campaigning against it, I need to go out and oppose it. So the question here is that, you know, we had sort of a focus of 30 years or so on devolution and localism was very much the buzzword in the early 2010s. We've seen the politics of place in recent years. We've seen Brexit levelling up, all being issues, um, the battle with Scotland, etc. And, I, and the, I suppose I will be interested to see the ramifications for that, for the kind of Conservative Party coming through the ranks. At most general elections, there tends to be a future PM in the candidate ranks, either defeated or victorious. So Theresa May lost in 1992, won in 97. David Cameron and Boris Johnson lost in 97 and won in 2001. I'll be interested in that. The other thing I think is, is, is telling is, of the, to go back to the Tories, the, the ambitious people here, I think, and a lot of people are either looking for incredibly safe seats or no hopers. As someone, one Tory told me, the worst kind of seat is one which is currently held by the Conservatives, but which they're going to lose next time because no Conservative wants to be blamed at the losing candidate when it's a Labour gain or a Lib Dem gain. So what the problem is, I think the Conservatives have, is they've got lots of people kind of bizarrely going for, um, you know, very few, under some few plum seats, but also there'll be loads standing in ones which are Labour held already, but there'll be very few which the Tories might, on a good day, say they got the Labour lead down to under 10 points. They could just hold, perhaps, I think that's the fear, but without a dedicated local candidate, they're going to lose because... Labour have on Lib Dems have been working that patch for about 18 months and as I put in the column the Lib Dems have been approaching this as a, a by-election campaign they've had people in place for a year and a half and they've really made themselves well known in certain areas which they're probably going to take next year. Fraser at the heart of this is a constitutional question isn't it? Are our MPs local MPs are they there for your, their constituents or are they there to be national politicians? I mean that's a tension that I think probably all MPs face and some MPs do one or the other better. I don't know if any does both quite well. I mean, Rishi Sunak guess supposedly this weekend back in his Yorkshire constituency meeting local voters. But if you're propelled into national politics, how much can you still be a good constituency MP? I guess my question is, when you vote for a politician, what are you actually voting for? One of the glories of our system is that can be entirely up to you. You can be somebody who who does want to support a local candidate or you can not care less if it's the devil himself with a blue or red rosette then you would vote for them if you, you if you fancy a cause or, or a prime minister etc it changes and success tends to go to the parties who get that mix right I think the funny thing that Zach Goldsmith actually did very badly in London because he tried to have quite a you know wanted to be very hands-on going to lots of meetings doing this that and the other and you know, as he worked out with the best will in the world you're only ever going to come across across 1% of the electorate doing something like that. So, of course, Rishi Sunak will be out, you know, um, helping to birth sheep or whatever. I mean, take releasing pictures of... Kissing babies. You know, w- w- whatever he's inclined to do, and you know, and release pictures of him being very all creatures great and small in his Yorkshire ideal. And that will, of course, that will release marketing to the pictures to promote the idea of him and his constituency. And he's actually more constituency-minded than people imagine. He he does. He's quite paranoid about the idea of being seen to be a city boy parachuted in the middle of the countryside. So he 
he's but he helicopters in. Well, w- w- however he gets in, when he he he's, he he does like to audition for his local cricket team to understand the dynamics of sheep farming as best he can. I do think that helps our system because it gives applies a nervous system which you don't really get in the kind of PR parliaments where people don't really have a direct contact with their voters. But nonetheless, this is a, I think all the, what one in one thing is for sure that if you want to find out if the Tories are going to be out for five or for ten years, you should look at the calibre of people who are going to remain. Now, by some measurements, we're looking at about 100-odd Tory MPs, down from 300 right now. So who are they going to be? Are they going to be this sort of... Um, uh, is there going to be in that happy few the um, conditions for a quick bounce back after only one term in opposition? Or are you going to deprive the Conservatives of a lot of talent? That's why James's piece matters. Now, um, uh, I was also struck to um, see in James's piece that there's a cabinet member who is bemoaning the quality of the new MPs, like the Red Wall people, saying basically they're social media influencers who ended up in, in Parliament. <laughs> so, but you, you've got um, you, you've got people who are not interested in ideas. All they want is more money for their constituency. Now, of course, I think the Tories are partly to blame for that because they've created a monster in Ben Houchen, the Teesside mayor. And all they've done is got him to ask for regional funds and they've given them money. And this kind of encourages new MPs to think this is what you do. You get into power, you beg for taxpayers' money, it gets given by central government. Now, this is, of course, the pork barrel model of politics, which is associated with the new Red Wall. A lot of these Red Wall MPs are people the Tories never really expected to win in the first place. But a lot of them haven't. A lot of them are dropping out. And I think a lot depends whether you're going to select a group of people who collectively will be able to think their way out whatever mess they find themselves in after the next election. Yeah, I think what Fraser says there rings true. And so... And so many matters think often the Tories' problems are of their own making. And the difficulty, you know, think of the levelling up funding model. It was encouraging them all to compete for its sort of Hunger Games style and sort of bring home the bacon and pork barrel politics. Um, so there are certainly issues there. But I think also people have admit that in 2019 there was a great celebration of the fact they had so many, you know, local champions, etc. And I think four years on, after a particularly rebellious parliament, now that's not just due to the MPs themselves, but the nature of the challenges they faced with COVID, etc., I think people have realised there are certainly issues with that model and also the Tories I think having a real identity crisis between the kind of blue wall low tax conservatives to put it crudely and the red wall which perhaps wants a different model. Fraser do you think that running through our discussion here and and you know some of the comments that James have heard from politicians is slightly snobbery about local candidates in the sense that you know why should we assume that just because someone is a local farmer they're not going to be national politician material you know that just because someone is a city lawyer doesn't mean that they're going to be better at leading the country. I wouldn't necessarily call it snobbery but it's certainly whether they're known Westminster players or not. I mean typically the rule is to get a you know to leave university to get a job with somebody's researcher then eventually they'll give you a safe seat. In this next election, we've got two people following that mould. We've got Rupert Harrison, who pretty much ran the Treasury under George Osborne. And then we've got Nick Timothy, who pretty much ran the government under Theresa May. So um, Harrison, oddly, has had to wait until now to enter Parliament. He could have done it like Matt Hancock, who used to be his partner in crime in 2015. But instead, he's waited until 2023. But, you know, he's in a safe seat. He'll probably get in. But those two are the rarity now. That kind of um, model, as um, Cameron and Osborne themselves took from special advisers into safe seat into parliament, that's for people who are taking a career in the masses 
as it were, uh, who chose politics as a career. And I think there is a general... People often want to sell opinion pollsters, but they would prefer somebody who's had a real career first, mm. etc. But when you look at who prospers, it does tend to be those who but know James, the Westminster game a bit better. But, but that's, that's the thing. But isn't that just because spads know the game? Special advisors played the game, they know the game. But that doesn't mean they're necessarily better MPs. And some of them are remarkably young. I think a couple of things here. I think, first of all, I think, you know, everything in moderation. So there's all. if you look at Parliament's history, we often sort of romanticise the past. We talk about Gladstone and Disraeli. That was always a minority. Frankly, in the 19th century, most MPs were terrible, which is why 90% of them have disappeared without trace. And there was a couple of great statesmen. If you look at the way the Commons set up, and our setup is you've currently got 350 Tory MPs. Of those, 100 are in government. Of those, 23 are in cabinet. So there's always a kind of, you know, elite, basically, unfortunately, going to be, what, what does that look like? And the key thing is about balance here. There is certainly criticism in the early 2010s that politics was too closed shop, too much of spads, etc. What I would say is that if you look at how the British state has suffered from in recent years, I think institutional memory is a challenge, and I think that experience can be a good thing. We've had so many reshuffles. Um, the common complaint is that government doesn't know what it's doing, and ministers make the same mistakes as their predecessors because they don't know what happened before. And I think that one of the issues is that you, you do want you know people who are local, etc., but equally, if they're not effective MPs, ministers in the government, I would argue perhaps, and others would argue for me, which is that there's certainly a, a, an issue there if you're not actually the national government isn't delivering and arguably that helps fuel discontent with political systems as much as any kind of sense of they're all Westminster elite of just expats so I think it's really about yes it's obviously being careful to I mean one person I spoke to was a self-confessed snob and, <laughs> and, and I'm ashamed of that fact when they sort of were quite disparaging about this but equally, it's, I think everyone really needs to realise that a successful political party that's aiming for the government of the day needs to comprise lifelong backbenchers, but also people who are going to be not just cabinet ministers, ministers of state and every level of government in order to make this country and its system work. And how much say does CCHQ have over selection, James? Because it does seem like at the moment it's all local ele- local associations choosing local candidates, as you say. But if, you, if you're going to be strategic about it, surely it's, a, it's the role of CCHQ to say, we're going to tell you how to get the mix right. Yeah, I mean, this is a hugely vexed question and people, I think, and as one candidate put it to me, and they were a successful candidate, so maybe I should bear this in mind, but they said, you know, people always complain, you know, people, every election, every contest has a loser, and and it's true. CCHQ obviously oversees the system which is in place. Basically, the grand bargain that William Hague struck in 1997 was that, you know, a lot of the sort of rights were usurped for the associations. Uh, They could have the ultimate pick over the candidate, Mm -hmm. but in return, the kind of conservative democracy was very much changed as a result of that. That's when they got the existing system for the leadership where we had the two-stage two stage round with the MPs vote and then the membership vote. Um, CCHQ does play a role in, you know, obviously you have to get on the approved central candidates list in order to be drawn from that. And then, you know, they, they do have a, there's a sort of five-man panel, I believe, that sort of lets you go out to different regions and they can choose that and they do have a say on who, who can and can't be a candidate. But I think also it's about association taste changing. And I just think there's a simple point, which is that it's not just about... You know, the attractions of a local candidate, you know, it's frankly easier to make the case to a swing voter saying, look, we've got a local guy, he knows the area, may not like him, but he's he's local and like the other person. Um, but it's also the barriers to entry have become fortified to outsiders. So it's harder to kind of go across the country, etc. And, and make in a system where you don't know the people. And so some would call that local connections, others would call it a degree of nepotism, etc. So I think there's swings around much to both of them. Um, but it's an issue, I think, which CCHQ frankly hasn't really looked at because they've been in government when the Tories are in government CCHQ gets I think becomes just sort of 
running the country and helping support the sort of political elements which the civil service can't do. There hasn't really been any sort of major party reform and Michael Howard made a real try of it in 2005 but since then since you know because on part opposition parties go oh I've changed my party I'll change the country in government they're too busy actually changing the country to worry about the party or trying to change the country. James and Fraser thanks very much and thank you very much for listening to Coffee House Shots. <laughs>